Welcome to Medicare for All Explained. This podcast will enlighten our listeners and dispel the distortions that surround Medicare for All. Medicare for All Explained is produced in collaboration with Physicians for a National Health Program and is hosted and produced by Joe Sparks. I'm your host, Joe Sparks. This is Episode 50, Public Option, Unions, Obligation, Part 1. My guest, James McGee, has spent his career in and around collectively bargained benefit plans, especially health care plans. He has primarily worked on union benefit plans, which are technically known as Taft-Hartley plans. Mr. McGee recently retired after 17 years working for the Transit Employees Health and Welfare Fund as its executive director. The fund provides the health care benefits for the active and retired members of ATU Local 689, employed by the Washington Metropolitan Area Transit Authority. Mr. McGee is on the steering committee of the Labor Campaign for Single Payer, the Montgomery County Chapter of Healthcare Now, and on the Board of Directors of the Universal Healthcare Action Network. My interview with Mr. McGee covers two episodes, 50 and 51. This episode, Part 1, discusses problems with the public option. Part 2 discusses how unions would benefit from Medicare for All and why health care is an obligation. It will be available on March 1st. And now, Public Option, Unions, Obligation, Part 1. Mr. James McGee, welcome to Medicare for All Explained. Thank you very much, Joe, for inviting me. And I look forward to an engaging conversation. I certainly hope so. I'd like to start by asking, in the debate to make sure that everybody can get medical care when needed, one compromise that has been suggested is the public option. Could you describe what the public option is? And do you think the public option is a good idea? So there's different versions of the public option. And let's back up a second and kind of frame the question a little bit, because uh, why are we talking about the public option now? One reason we're talking about the public option is that Joe Biden, our new president, has made it fairly clear that he uh, is not a fan of Medicare for all. And so short of Medicare for all, what are our options? And one of the uh, ideas that was talked about by Joe Biden himself and by many of the other uh, contenders for the Democratic nomination was this idea of a public option. And uh, I won't mince any words. I do not think much of the public option. Uh, I think it's a bad idea. and. But I also think that many in the uh, in our camp, the Medicare for All camp, tend to criticize the public option because it's not Medicare for All, and uh, they point out with right that it doesn't 
simplify the administration. It still leaves 10 million people uninsured, and it's just a, it's not Medicare for all. But what I maintain is, of course, it's not Medicare for all. It's a compromise. So it is not a good criticism to say that it falls short of Medicare for all. We have to examine why is it a bad compromise. And you need to have the right framework in terms of what gets us to where we want to go. And one of the main reasons that the current system is bad is that it sets up this competitive world that the for-profit insurance companies thrive on. And they exploit this notion of choice and they exploit our ignorance of the choices available to us. And they view healthcare as a private good. It's a good that either has to be purchased or earned. And Medicare for All views healthcare as a public good, something that all of us are entitled to in the same way that we're all entitled to clean air and clean water and transportation and education and those kinds of uh, services. And so if you're thinking of compromises, you want to think of a compromise that's going to move us in the right direction. And a public option accepts the premise of healthcare as a private good. And it puts a public plan into this competitive marketplace. And, and it's a bad strategy on two accounts. Number one, just de facto, it makes, it turns a public plan essentially into a quasi-private plan. It is playing by the rules set by the private marketplace. That's not where we want to be. So where do we want to be? We want to be in the, have the idea where the public plan does not compete with the private plan. Am I making sense? I think so. Just summarize a bit. Basically what you're saying is that the private plan would just keep health care as a purchase good and we don't want to go in that direction and it would still leave people uninsured. Correct. One thing that concerns me about a public option, given that health insurance companies have done things before, it would seem to me that what they would do is they would figure out a way to keep the healthy people and put all the sicker people in the public plan. And then we would have the worst of both worlds where you have the government paying for the sicker people and the private companies just taking the healthy people. Well, that's a concern. And frankly, I think that most of the people who support a public option have not thought it through. They are seduced by this combination of words public, which has this kind of liberal sound to it, and option, which is 
more appealing to conservative elements, perhaps. And so, and they haven't really thought through exactly what a public option is, but private industry, the Partnership for America's Healthcare Future, which represents the for-profit healthcare industry, the hospitals, the insurance companies, the pharmaceutical companies, they aren't fooled by words like public and option. They see this as a threat, and they see this as a threat to their business model. I look at this as twofold. Number one, you're going to encounter the same opposition to a public option from the industry that you encounter with a Medicare for All proposal. So why go halfway? That's just from a strategic point of view. But the other point of view is the public option doesn't get you in the direction you want to go. It is privatizing a public good. So I think you need to start thinking about what will get us where we want to go. Are there compromises that do perhaps move the ball forward? And I think perhaps there might be. So the idea that, you know, there's a lot of people that say uh, you can't, in moving from the current system to a Medicare for all system, that you can't cross a chasm in a single, in two leaps. And there's, there's a logic to that thinking because you're changing the fundamental assumptions in our healthcare plan. You're changing the assumption from healthcare as a private good to healthcare as a public good. That is a tricky course to navigate incrementally. So the other proposal that's out there is lower the Medicare age. But I think we have to think a lot bigger than lowering the Medicare age. Medicare Advantage is gaining an increasing foothold in, uh, in the healthcare marketplace, in the Medicare marketplace. I think it's uh, 30 to 35% of uh, Medicare enrollees are enrolled in a Medicare Advantage plan. And Medicare Advantage plans, uh, as much as we criticize them, they tend to be popular with the people who are in them. And why are they popular? Because, and, 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 I, and I think we have to be honest about why they're popular and think about how we can make Medicare itself look like Medicare Advantage and still be a totally public plan because Medicare Advantage basically gives all the federal money to the insurance companies and allows them to skim whatever they don't spend. And that's just a bad incentive. Medicare Advantage has streamlined enrollment. You don't have to have separate enrollments for Medicare Part A, B, and C. You don't have separate premiums for, I mean, A, B, and D. You don't have separate premiums for A, B, and D and your supplement program. Um, it has a fairly comprehensive set of benefits. It is just simpler. So we need to enrich the benefit pool for Medicare. We need to limit out-of-pocket expenses, preferably eliminate out-of-pocket expenses. I mean, the 
Medicare as it exists now does not even conform with the coverage requirements of the Affordable Care Act. That's a great point, that it doesn't conform to those requirements. So, you know, we need to strengthen Medicare, make it more attractive by itself. Uh, let's not even talk about adding long-term care and, and things like that. Just add dental, add vision, add hearing aid, add full range of reproductive health services, which given the age of the population it covers, it doesn't cover those now, and make enrollment streamlined and consolidate into all of the Part D plans into one national prescription drug program and not this plethora of Part D plans that you have depending on where you live. That's what you do to make Medicare itself more appealing. And then we have to make Medicare Advantage less appealing because right now we're paying on average about $1,000 more per Medicare beneficiary for those in Medicare Advantage than we are in traditional Medicare. And there's a reason from a policymaker perspective why that is. And it has to do with the fact that Medicare Advantage is not available in every place in the country. What the Medicare program does is it takes what it considers relatively high-cost areas and allows the private industry to bid on that. So by definition, they're insuring almost a more expensive group of people. So we need to lower the reimbursement to the Medicare Advantage plans so that they're not reaping the huge profits they are. And I think when you combine those elements, you make traditional Medicare a whole lot more attractive. You make Medicare Advantage less attractive, especially to the insurance companies. And then the last thing, and this is an idea that nobody that I know of is talking about, and that is eliminate what's called the Medicare Secondary Payer Act. So, uh, you know, I am 70 years old. Uh, I just uh, uh, retired. And until I retired, my employer was my primary insurance. That wasn't always the case. When Medicare was first created in 1965, when you turn retirement age 65, Medicare was your primary payer. And that changed in the 1980s with this Medicare's Secondary Payer Act. That was a huge cost shift onto private employers to make them pay for their employees and their dependents of their employees who were otherwise eligible for Medicare. You know, if it had happened under a Democratic president, I am sure the business community would have screamed bloody hell. But we have this thing called the Medicare Secondary Payer Act. And here's where I think an incremental approach can actually work. Because if we can get to the point where we have strengthened Medicare and then we make Medicare primary, and that's basically what Sanders and Jaya Hall are both doing. 
They're both saying private plans don't compete with a public plan. So for all those employees who are eligible for Medicare who are working, Medicare would pay first. So then if you started to lower the retirement age or lower the Medicare eligibility age, that would shift the costs away from employers and make that idea more attractive. Plus, it would get employees used to the idea of Medicare paying first and their employer paying second. One of the things is, as you mentioned, I'm, I am on the steering committee of the Labor Campaign for Single Payer, and we talk to uh, union audiences a lot. And one of the things that uh, we talk to them about is retaining the ability to uh, sometimes even putting it into a contract ahead of time to protect any benefits that they have now that might not be included in, in a national or state single-payer plan. But that's a hard sell. People don't connect to that because they don't, they don't, they're not used to it. But this idea would get them used to it. They would see how their employer plan overlays and meshes with the, the Medicare plan. Well, what about spouses who aren't eligible for Medicare? What if the person had children? Would they still be on the employer-sponsored plan? How would that work? Ideally, you would have a situation where anybody who is not insured falls into a public plan. But in the way healthcare bargaining works, not everybody is able to negotiate benefits for spouses and dependents. But most plans do negotiate family benefits. And it would work exactly the way it works now in the employer world. In fact, before I left, we were dealing with this very issue because we were looking at some Medicare Advantage plans, reluctantly, because it was agreed to in collective bargaining. And one of the problems was what happens to uh, spouses and dependents who are not Medicare eligible. They would stay on the employer plan, but would they be covered by the same insurer? So this is just a problem to be worked out. It is not an insolvable problem. If the plan is covering them now, they will continue to cover them. So even if the person would go on Medicare, if their plan covers the spouse and children, you're saying that that plan would continue to cover them like it does now? Yes. yes. Okay. Jim, thank you for explaining the problems with the public option. In part two, Jim will discuss how unions would benefit from Medicare for all and why health care is an obligation. Part two will be available on March 1st. You have been listening to Medicare for All Explained. Information about this podcast can be found at our website, medicareforallexplained.org. The music for this show is Super Bubbly by Jesse Spillane. The logo was created by Lily Sparks. Thank you for listening.